Well, hello again and welcome to another of our Baird Bites. On this occasion, I am joined by Anne Hill, who last December, I'm told, retired from Avery Dennison, uh, where she had been CHRO. Hard to believe that somebody so young could actually have retired, but there you go. Anne is, I suppose, what you could best describe as a melange of British Right. You know, Scottish mother, Welsh father grew up in Belfast and, you you know, you don't get much more melange than that. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Anne. How did such a, a melange of Britishness end up on the West Coast of America as a CHRO? What brought you to that? Well, Tom, I've never been called a melange before and I love it. I think I'm going to put it as my middle name. So thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, well, um, first of all, just to say, I, as, as, as you mentioned, I, I did so-called retire. I mean, I, I, after 40 years in corporate life, actually. Um, so I don't like the, the, however, the R word is not a pleasant one. Um, I think the Spanish, the word for retirement is jubilación. And mm. I, I think, um, I, I've moved into a period of jubilation, but anyway, we, we can come on to that. Um, yeah, so um, I uh, spent the first 10 years of uh, working life in London, and then I had the opportunity to come to the States, and um, when those opportunities arise, you take them, and I was lucky enough to join a fantastic company in Chicago. I actually spent the first 10 years in the States in Chicago, and um, working for a big uh, U.S. healthcare company, and uh, and then I land, got to the, uh, California actually because we made an acquisition and decided to headquarter the new division, the new business in, in California because it was in uh, biotech, bioscience. And we felt that uh, California was more appropriate and we'd be able to get a better talent pool. So we moved here and I've been here 20 years um, actually in, in California. And you know I've subsequently moved companies, but been fortunate enough to remain here. And, and so um, all my children grew up and they're all Californians pretty much. Um, and it's home. So I've just been very fortunate to, you know, have a career that spanned both, both Europe and, and the States and have a global career. Here I am on the West Coast. Some would say not the easiest place to, to run a global operation from. The time zones aren't exactly easy. But um, on the other hand, uh, California has a lot of advantages. How how did you get into HR, human resources, in the first place? What was your attraction? Well, you know, I'd like to have some brilliant (laughs) sort of statement about that, but I think it's twofold. One, I had uh, done sort of industrial relations and so on at university. And so it was a sort of, you know, a natural affiliation with the social sciences. And two, actually, back in back in the day, um, it was a career where women could actually do well, were well represented in a time where they weren't necessarily represented in a lot of other careers. So um, I went into HR pretty much, um, you know, I joined the proverbial graduate training program and then at the end of two years went into a, chose to go into HR and I've been in it ever since. And it's given me a fantastic career. So I've, I've been fortunate. You, you, you mentioned that you studied industrial relations at university. Oh, that's, that was, you know, 
back in the day. If I, if, you know, and I don't want to be sexist about this in the slightest, but that wouldn't necessarily be sort of a, a subject choice for a woman in those days. You know, I'm thinking about sort of Britain back in the day, your male-dominated trade unionism, ma- machoism and all that sort of stuff. Why industrial relations? Well, it was only one part of what I did. Of course, I did other um, um, studies, but it was it was significant. Actually, I just thought it was it was in the seventies. Um, so you know, mid, uh, late seventies, and yes, um, and I remember that we had some mature students on my program. Actually, they were they'd been shop stewards and so on. They, mm. I was terrified of them. Terrified. <laughs> I was eighteen years old, and these guys they were. <laughs> Oh, my God. And, you know, they, they would always ask, um, do you support the unions? And I, I only had one answer, and that was, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, that you know, it was, it was an eye-opener. It was, it was good. I mean, it was, you know, um, so, and, and the irony of all of that, oh, by the way, Tom. Oh, by the way, by the way, mm. did you support the unions? At 18 years old, going through what we've been through in the U.K., Three-day working week, strikes galore, and so on. No, was the answer. No, I didn't. Yeah. So let me put it to you this way. You were beginning, even at that early age, to question the wisdom of trade unionism and collectivism. It didn't seem at that point to have done the UK much good at that point in the 70s. Not to say it hadn't done earlier in earlier decades, but yeah, I mean, it was a mess. And when you're young, you grow up, all you see is around you. You know, you haven't got electricity. Um, It's just one perpetual strike after another. It just didn't seem like a good solution. And the country going broke um, to boot. And, you know, I, I didn't have any personal experience of, of unions, of course, but other than I was at the receiving end. So yeah. but what I was going to say is the irony, of, the irony of all of that, Tom, is throughout my career, I've, believe it or not, I've really never had to deal with unions. I mean, in a very light way um, a few years ago, but I've been in companies that were largely... Um, at least from the U.S. point of view, I want to say, but also um, around the world, you know, other than works councils and usual things, largely um, not heavily unionized. So there's the irony of that. Which sort of brings me to the question, you know, I mean, I well remember the U.K. in the 1970s when you were at university, as you mentioned, you were just heading into the winter of discontent and that brought Margaret Thatcher uh, into government and then subsequently a whole change in approach to trade unions in, in the UK. But you mentioned um, you've largely been working with companies that were union light, so to speak. Why do you think people no longer join trade unions? You know, first of all, I will say that, you know, that, that that's, that's a difficult question to ask for a, on, a, on a global basis because, um, you know, there's different circumstances. But I like to think that on the whole, that companies increasingly, but the companies I've worked for have always been socially responsible, looking after, uh, making sure that the environment um, was a good one for people to to work in and paying fair wages and decent, decent work conditions. And 
and and with that, then the question becomes, you know, what are the benefits of? Uh, by the way, I mean, I do think that unions had their place and maybe still do in certain circumstances. So I don't want to be, you know, just anti-union. In fact, coming to the states where it's pretty anti-union for the most part, it was an eye-opener for me when I first came of how uh, vigorous it was of sort of sort of union busting, so to speak, if there was any indication of um, people thinking about collectively getting together in the union. So I hadn't experienced that uh, before. But yeah, so I, I, you know, have unions had their day? I don't know. I mean, we just had the big Amazon um, issue. I don't know if you were aware of that yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Europe, but, uh, you know, ultimately uh, the, uh, the, the employees voted not to, not to join the union, but it was... Uh, Kind of interesting, and it was interesting the fact that it was so much in the news. You know, um, one company, one location. But I, I take it from what you're saying, Anne, that um, when it comes to unions and employer representations, you're let me put it this way: you'd be pragmatic about it, and you say, "Well, you, we are where we are, and we look at the circumstances, and put, depending on the country we're in, and all that sort of stuff." But uh, what struck me is sort of how. You said a couple of moments ago, you know, when you came to the States, how taken aback you were by how different it was. Well, what, why do you think that is? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> yes, well, I'm probably no, no expert to talk about that. I think it goes some, you know, historical uh, views on, on some of the unions and the politicization of hmm. the unions and corruption and, and, and different things. But... Um, you know, I, uh, by the way, I will say that my first 10 years I worked when I was working in London, I worked um, for uh, a company called the John Lewis Partnership, which you may know. Oh, I, I, well, well, we all know that. Yeah. But look, we know it so well that Boris Johnson just threw out all of the furniture that was in his apartment that had previously been there from John Lewis. I, now, <laughs> oh, oh, OK. All right. Well, I am. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm not on top of that one. There's a lot of stuff coming out about Boris right now, and I, I don't know about yeah. that. But oh yeah, the John, the, the John Lewis furniture was just good, not good enough for him. Right? Good enough. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. I always thought it was pretty good myself, but um, no. But you know what? The thing is that um, the interesting thing about John Lewis, as um, many people might know, is that it's uh, employee. Uh, it's owned by the people who work there. They're known as partners. And um, talk about a social experiment uh, before its time and still has endured. And, you know, what really um, I learned through um, that experience was the importance of actually employee, employees having a voice. And, um, you know, there is a very demo democratic structure in, in the partnership, I assume there still is, where um, employees um, were represented up to and including on the board um, because we didn't have shareholders. And, you know, it really was um, a situation where you had to be transparent about what was going on. You would be held to account by what was going on. And I think it was very good instruction for me. Um, and, you know, I, I think that a, a lot of companies um, over the last decade or two have gravitated more towards that, you know, much more um, transparent work environment than they used to be. But back in the day, um, I'm not sure that was always the case. And, you know, um, to some extent, I suppose companies got what they deserved. Um, but Let's leave unions and industrial relations aside for the moment. 
Um, what are the, what are the big changes that you have seen over your career in the way HR policy, the way HR policy is approached in the workplace? How how, how does you know, have you, what what are the changes you've seen? Well, you know, I will say, Tom, I just what I'll just build from what I was saying. Um, I think that. Um, I think there is a lot more transparency of practices and policies in the workplace. And, and, and part of that um, born from the, the pretty stringent um, reporting requirements that are now in place around the world. I mean, certainly in the States, you know, you've got um, SEC reporting requirements, you've got um, you know, you've got votes on executive compensation, you've got um, requirements around pay equity, you know, just to name a few. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, all of those things it has, means that how, what you're doing and how you're approaching things is a lot more transparent because it's not only in the domain of, of the employee base, but it's in the public domain. And, and I think that's, take, do, that's do, quite do, a change. Do you think social media... Um, magnifies that, that anything you do, you know, is out there in a nanosecond? Um, I think it does. You know, I'll go, I'll go back, though, to, you know, I think, it's, I think it's catch up. Actually, the John Lewis partnership, you know, back in the day, employees could and probably still can write in letters anonymously holding that would be printed that, um, and of course, this is way before social media, that, that management had to reply to. So it was, it was the early days, mm. if you like, of, of internal social media. Nowadays, yeah, it's very quick. I, you know, you can be, look, I touch wood because, you know, at this point, I haven't been the recipient of a lot of I hope negative social media, or you know, not me personally, nor nor the companies I've been with. But um, I, I think that I, I don't run scared of that. I think that you should be held to account, and I think you know, if you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, um, you know, hopefully you have nothing to um, nothing to worry about. But that really does mean that you need to know uh, where you draw the line on on certain things. So. Um, yeah, so I think I think that's changed. You know, the other thing I would say is I, I think has changed is the overall quality of HR practitioners. Um, it, there's always been great people, mm. but I think it's a lot more consistent these days. And I see, you know, the um, both colleagues um, as well as the younger generation coming through. I mean, they're really fantastic, and they've come from you know, um, different backgrounds, and it's far less, as you know, um, coming out of the administrative pool, and, you know, you'll do for HR. And so I think it's, um, I, I'm really optimistic about the, the function as a whole, I think, um, just incredible talent, um, who are going, and, and it needs to be because, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. it's, the amount of change, you know, the yeah. amount of disruption um, is that's changed as well. The speed, the speed of the disruption is just incredible. And do you, do do you think employee expectations of companies have changed as well? I definitely do for the um, for the I'll say the younger generation. Um, yes, and. Um, you know, I think that you see the move now in terms of um, expectations of companies being socially responsible. 
um, both socially and environmentally responsible. That's very obviously um, a big one. Um, I think, and you, and you see companies putting out their sustainability reports with lot, loads of information about what they're doing, um, both from an environmental and social point of view. And I, and I think that, yes, um, particularly now, I mean, I think it definitely increasing, certainly here in the US, um, you know, in an absence of uh, decent uh, political rapport and so on, um, I think that it's increasingly being um, left to the companies to pick to companies to pick up the pieces. It can be challenging because you know um, you can employees can look at it through the lens of that you're being political, um, but I don't see it that way. Um, I don't. I think we can keep do a lot of good things with it and keep it out of the political domain. That's my hope. I'm thinking about, for instance, over the last year or two, we've seen groups of employees in the likes of Microsoft, Amazon, Google saying, our company should not be involved in this business or that business, or they should not be doing business with this country or with that person. I mean, do you think they're pressures that are likely to increase? You know that it's <clears throat> yeah. I, I think the pressures are likely to increase, but I think you know it's not a black and white issue like that. I mean, you know, for instance, um, uh, you know, we certainly this last year in the U.S. there's been a lot of focus on social justice given the events of last summer, um, and you know, I think companies have really had to pull up their socks on that and sort of say, what can we do to help, um, you know, change, uh, change the, the, the environment. Um, at the same time, we have lots of employees in China and Hong Kong and mm -hmm. so on getting involved in um, what's going on there. You know, when, you know, what, what is our role? I think that's a, that, I think that's a challenging one. And so, you know, you take it to any sort of, flashpoint around the world and we can't be all things to all people but I certainly in our backyard backyard so to speak here um, um, with as I say all the social justice issues I think we do play a big role. I mean the last year has obviously you just mentioned the last year and I'm, I'm conscious of the, the, the political issues that there have been in the United States but globally we've been con fronted with the COVID pandemic and we've seen companies having to react rapidly and at pace um, to cope. Uh, a lot of suggestions that the world of work as we go on from here is not going to be the same as it was previously. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it is remarkable the um, oft overused word, but I'll use it anyway. Um, the mark, remarkable how everybody managed to pivot onto working from home. I mean, it's just incredible. If you go back to March and um, March 2020, and you know, we thought we'd be out of the office for maybe three weeks, and mm. here we are. You know, um, it's just uh, been unbelievable how people um, have adapted. Not you know, sometimes more challenging than others, but really incredible. So. I think that um, we have a huge opportunity now to, to change how people view work based on where they do their work and what the cadence of that work is. And I certainly hope we don't squander the opportunity 
because I, I don't, there's, you know, it's, there's, we've never had anything like it, perhaps since the Industrial Revolution, and and God knows, hopefully, we won't have anything like it in in you know um, in years to come. But here we are, and I think that um, we've found that if we uh, trust in people, they do the right thing. I don't think, for the most part, productivity has suffered. Um, it's hard. It's hard sometimes to try and quantify that. But um, and I, I think that you know, treating um, employees as the adults that they are um, to get on and and do their work as best they can um, is the way to go. And so, you know, people look. One of the benefits, obviously, of working for a company is the social side of it. Um, I mean, many people they meet their their partners at work. They meet that they make their friend networks at work. It's important. It's so it's to me, it's not an either or. And you know. Um, I do think it will be this hybrid. I do think we'll have some bumps in the road. There are benefits of being together, but there's huge benefits also of giving people a lot more flexibility. And um, as I say, I just, I just really hope, and it worries me when I see um, companies sort of flipping to either side of the continuum, either mm-hmm. nobody's ever coming back into the office or I want everybody back in the office. I mean, I think we're smarter than that. And um you know, I think that still, particularly right now, you know, there are, we're not over all of this. And so I think, um, you know, people are looking for certainty. I know employees want to know, well, what's going to happen? And I think it's probably for a lot of companies still too early to absolutely say this is exactly the roadmap um, to reopening. Um but I do, as I say, I just, I, I, I really think we're going to see a fundamental shift. So, what I think I hear you saying, Anne, is that, you know, we're going to move towards a hybrid model, but there's going to be a period of experimentation until we find the right balance between what coming into the office means, what working remotely means, how we manage all of these things. Would that be the way you see it? That, you know... We're not going back to the old way, but what the new way is still has to be worked out. I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I, at some fundamental level, I think is what it, what is the role of the office? I mean, really, what, why, what, and and once you can define that, what you want the role of the office to be, um, then you can then you can start to move in that way. I mean, I think what we're seeing right now is with um, certainly there's some relaxation in, in the US um, and uh, you're starting to see people going back into the office, but they're going back in on, on a designated day. You know, your mm. day is Wednesday, for instance. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that will, that will evolve. And I will also say, Tom, of course, and you know this, that this is another thing that it's not a one size fits all. Mm. There are- around the world. I mean, I know that a lot of my colleagues, for instance, in Hong Kong, whose living arrangements, you know, are small, generally smaller um, square foot than um, we enjoy here. They want to be back in the office. And and so I think that that's the other thing. It's it's flexibility. And that's why I I sort of raise my eyebrows when I see companies making sort of these these big. Yeah, yeah. announce pronouncements which is you know nobody's going back in or what or whatever it may be and it's sort of like well yeah Yeah. maybe which is which is why i constantly use the word remote working rather than working from home because i'm 
only too aware of the fact that many people can't work from home. You can work from home in an emergency, but you know, if you've got, you know, a, a 40 square meter apartment with two kids, a dog, a budgie and whatever else, you know, that's not the ideal, but maybe you can go down the road to an internet cafe or a, a working hub or something like that. So, yeah, I think, so I've got two more questions for you before we finish. Hey, the first one is, what advice would you give to somebody going into HR today? Well, first of all, there's never been a better time to go into HR. It is. I mean, if the, if the last year has shown us anything, it's shown how important um, the HR function is, looking after people, um, helping them to do the best they can. So, But in terms of just very practical advice, um, uh, I would say, number one, don't make promises that you can't keep. Um, so, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's been a lot of things that certainly at the start of the pandemic, you saw companies saying, oh, we won't do any layoffs. Or, you know, we'll, and even now the pronouncements about back to work and so on. And, you know, and you know this, um, over the years, things like when you're doing acquisitions, uh, oh, we'll take the best of both worlds and make us better together. Mm, yeah, <laughs> so I would say just don't make promises you can't keep, um, mm. you know, and, you know, because otherwise it'll, that, that dilutes the trust. And, and in HR, it's really, really important that you have trust. Um, so so that's, that's one thing. And the other thing I would say is quite simply, figure out how you're going to be a catalyst to put joy back into the workplace. You know, we spend hours, I mean, half our life, if not at work or somehow or other, or thinking about work. It should be a place where you enjoy it, you have joy, where you can have fun, where you can do great. That's not at the expense of getting your work done. It's not at the expense of excellence. And I think the HR function, and it, and by the way, this is not about the company picnic or having you know cocktails yeah, yeah. over Zoom. It's really about how do you meet in the you know the individual employee at where they're at and make it a great experience for them. The worst thing for me, Tom is thinking about people dreading coming into coming into work or being in work because because they have a lousy boss or they've screwed up and don't feel they can you know be honest about it or the expectations of them are just way out of whack or whatever it might be it shouldn't be like that um, and and I think we've I think we've got a lot better at it and I think that's up to also the HR function to really consider um, how we keep accelerating that so the last question is this. As a very young jubilation, is that the correct Spanish word? As a very young jubilation, what's next for Anne Hill? Ah, well, you know, what? Other than walk, walking on the California beaches every day and okay. uh, getting on my surfboard. Come on, come on. I have this image of you, like, with the Jim Rockford lifestyle, sitting in your little cabin there, overlooking the lapping ocean and so on, you know? That's me. That's me, 100%. Um, well, you know, what, so one of the pieces of advice I was given, Tom, was was don't jump into too many things immediately. Give yourself space and time um, to, you know, without committing. And so I'm testing that theory right now, although I have jumped into a couple of things. Um, so what have you jumped into? Come on, tell us. I'm on a not-for-profit board, for instance, and I'm getting more involved with that, with some of the work they're doing. I'm talking about potentially going to the board of a 
of a university here in Southern California. Um, and then the whole area of um, sort of, I'll say executive coaching, but in a light way, more like people going through change like myself. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I hope to mentor um, new people coming into HR, actually. I mean, just that's something I feel like it can, can do. And then the final thing I'd say, which there's always an expectation when you, when you come out of the C-suite that somehow you land on a, bo- a board mm. of directors of a publicly traded company. Um, and, uh, so I don't know whether I'll do that. I might, um, if any, of course, HR has not been top of the pick for people on, <laughs> going on to boards. Well, so we'll see. Well, let me say this to you, Anne, that anybody who would be mentored by you would not go far wrong, you know, and anybody who listened to what you've had to say over the last ha- half an hour or so would want to be mentored by you. So listen, um, Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And hopefully at some stage in the future, I'll see you at a HR policy meeting somewhere in Washington or somewhere else. But until then, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom.